Let us pray. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, you have made us one with your saints in heaven and on earth. Help us to see your presence burning in the hearts of others. Grant that we may be united in a fellowship of love and prayer. Give us the courage to pick up our cross and respond to the needs of the world. Give us the stamina to follow you, to be your hands and heart in the world. Enable us to witness to your grace and mercy. Amen. We are called to bring a new understanding of God, that God so loves the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are called to bring a new hope in God, that God gives us new life. We are the light of the world. We are called to follow the commandments and the law. The law of God is to love God and to love one another. Come, let us be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Come. Let us love one another with the love of God. How easily we notice the sins of others, finding ways to criticize what they do or do not do. How much harder it is to believe that we are sinners needing to repent of habits that separate us from God and sent us against our neighbors who are different from us. Let us join our voices together in confessing our sins to God and one another. Loving and merciful one, we thank you for the community in which you have placed us, for the brothers and sisters and siblings with whom we walk this journey. Yet we confess that we fail to love, to love as you love. We push aside those whom we believe are the least in, in your kingdom. When we fail to see you, your kingdom in parables because we fail to see your kingdom in each other, we create walls of division to keep some out and some in from in us a new vision of community in which there is neither east nor west, neither south nor north. We pray for the sake of your kingdom that both is and is not yet. Amen. Friends, siblings, God seeks the lost sheep and feeds them with justice. Forgiven and freed, turn then and live fully in Christ our Lord. The peace of Christ be with you and flow through you.
Our first reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. Listen for the word of God. So why was the law given? It was added because of offenses until the descendant would come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now the mediator does not take one side, but God is one. So is the law against the promises of God? Absolutely not. If a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would be in, would in fact have come from the law. But scripture locked up all things under sin, so that the promise based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ might be given to those who have faith. Before faith came, we were guarded under the law, locked up until faith that was coming would be revealed, so that the law became our custodian until Christ, so that we might be made righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God. Friends, hear now the words from the Gospel of Luke. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, Happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. Jesus replied, A certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, Come, dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen, and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly into the city streets, the busy ones, and the side streets, and bring the destitute and outcast. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the height of 45's campaign to build a wall, I remember seeing a photo of people standing on the remains of the Berlin Wall in Germany with the caption, Walls Divide. A critique, of course, on the sociological, moral, and psychological landscape of what construction of what constructing such a feature looks like. I've told you stories in previous sermons for those who were here last year about my time spent at the U.S.-Mexico border, partaking in communion that crosses all borders, about the body and blood of Christ that can no longer be physically or legally passed through the wall to the other side because it is considered contraband. Standing in the presence of such a massive structure changes the conversation, though you definitely don't need to be there and see it to understand its implication. I think the critique from Germany, from Germany is poignantly, in my opinion, right. Even at its fundamental core, political commentary aside, walls are unnatural divisions between groups of things. Even a fenced-in yard, which might just be used to keep the dog from running into the street, creates this hyper-individualistic differentiation between what is mine and what is yours, what belongs inside or needs to remain outside. 
Of course, walls aren't inherently a positive or negative thing. A house, an apartment, an office building, a church building are all made of walls, and I'm not about to preach a sermon about taking a sledgehammer to them, though that would be a really great stress relief. For example, we know that human existence is embodied existence. The first borders we know, the first walls we know, are the walls of our own skin, our own mind. We can't experience living outside of those walls, and they are walls of protection, walls that literally give us shape and form. But what I have found in most cases, in the physical and metaphorical walls by which I am surrounded, is that these walls come with a nice message of security, safety, homogeny, and status quo. Depending on who built them, who was the power and the infrastructure to build them, those sentiments could be felt on either side of the wall. Walls keep me away from dangerous people like prisoners, and walls keep me from unacceptable people like undocumented immigrants. I think it's safe to say that most physical walls are built by the powers and principalities who rule the day, the pharaohs, the Romans, the Europeans, the white Americans, the list goes on. The walls they build, the walls we build, are driven by the myth of scarcity and fear of the other. And like our German friend said, walls divide. It's a reality that finds its way into many corners of our lives, including the church which is one that we might know all too well. The church has, and always still very much is, very good at creating walls around who is and isn't welcome, which is, I believe, absolutely contrary to the entire scriptural witness of what it means to be the church. The Apostle Paul reminds us in his first letter to the Corinthians that we are one body. When one part is hurting, we are all hurting. It is a sacred metaphor, one that might be a little cliche and overused at this point, but is reflective of an idea that permeates scripture, that we are all God's children. In this letter to the Galatians that we read tonight, Paul suggests that Christ creates one community, not many. Thus, there should not be, can no longer be, barriers separating us. One community is not just a dream. It is reflective of a reality that proclaims all are welcome, all are welcome, all are welcome. In Paul's time and in the years following, the church was still very much trying to figure out what it was, what it believed, and exactly what to do about this whole Jesus thing. But the records we have in the, books, in the book of Acts gives us a glimpse into the way Paul advocated to expand our walls of inclusion, which is maybe a lens through which we have not read Paul before. At the Council of Jerusalem, Paul advocated for Gentiles to be included into the Jesus movement without having to follow Jewish law. Paul was not saying that the law had become obsolete. He was still very much Jewish and followed the law, practiced the law. But that Christ is the one who has redefined who is included in the people of God and has made possible the gift of Abraham's blessing to non-Jews. And yet people were going around and telling these Gentiles that they had to be circumcised. This is where we meet Paul in, in the book of Galatians. Again, this is not a critique of the practice. It had just already been decided that Gentiles who were joining the Jesus movement didn't need to be didn't need to be under Torah law. We don't need to be creating new boundaries when those have already been torn down for us. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one because Christ has brought you all in. Just a quick aside, I really like how the CEB translate the last part, there isn't male and female. It suggests that maybe there's more than that, that there's a lot in between. I like where it's going. Anyway, here we can imagine a community in which differences don't vanish. 
Division and diversity are two different things, but barriers in the sense of inferiority and superiority are destroyed. Paul suggests that the Jewish followers of Jesus are not superior, they are equal to their Greek counterparts. The expectation of how we live and move and have our being in the world as we are connected to other humans in this thing called the body of Christ requires that we tear down our walls. Because if we are using walls of superiority and inferiority to keep the status quo, we are not only oppressing others, we are also locking ourselves into cycles of oppression. The fellowship that Paul envisions for the kingdom of God is one that can only really occur when we are all free and liberated from the bonds of oppression. Let me just say too, and I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to the internet, that this needs to be an always thing, not just a just-in-church thing. We read one of Jesus' parables tonight that appears in Luke and Matthew and critiques formal banqueting rules of antiquity. Ancient Palestine was ruled by a culture of honor and shame and where your status could be moved up or down depending on how you play your cards. If an influential person or someone trying to gain influence was going to throw a dinner party, which is never a haphazard affair, always meticulously planned, you would want to invite the finest and most powerful people. That is just the expectation. And when we read the story, we should know that it is really rude for the invited guests to have backed out at the last minute. The system as it exists places shame on everyone. But what if we listen to Jesus as he turns the system on its head? What if we abandon the system entirely? What if we invited the people who don't usually get invited? What if we invited random people who we have met on the streets? What if we invite people who are not giving us anything back, the dangerous, the unaccepted, and still we get there and there is more room? There is always more room. One commentary I read suggested that in this model, insiders are out and outsiders are in. It's catchy, but I think it does a disservice to what is at stake if we just eliminate the labels of insider and outsider and switch it to all. What might happen to us, the church, and the world then when all are welcomed and all are loved? It seems so straightforward, and, yes, we've, and yet we've made it so difficult. I have this quasi-theory that I can't really prove, nor do I have the credentials to prove, that countries that have to erect a giant wall can't be doing so well. What fear of the other, what defensiveness, what stereotypes, what perceived lack of abundance must you have that this becomes a priority? I realize I'm asking a really simple question to a very complex set of issues, but also have we built it up to complexity to avoid dealing with the pretty simple truth that prejudice and an inability to reconcile our violent history have led us here? I don't know whether I'm talking about the state of the world or the state of the church anymore, but I do believe that walls separating insider and outsider break the heart of God. When we put exceptions on who is worthy and who is love, and like the word we use all the time, who is loved radically, justly, fully, we have to be missing something. I know we don't get it right all the time, but I am consistently grateful to be part of a community of people at the PSC who live fully into tearing down walls that the church has traditionally put up, who think creatively into what it means to be the body of Christ, who proclaim to the world that we are a place where all are welcome. And just to be clear, when I say all, I do mean you. You who are created and loved by God for all who you are, you have a place here. You and your neighbors, and there is still going to be more room. You are welcome here. To the banquet, to the body of Christ, because Christ has made it so. 
So let us live into this abundance, knowing that Christ has torn down the walls for us. Let us tear down the walls that we have created, so all are welcome, always, no exceptions. Man has seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power. You are laying down our swords, replanting every vineyard till a brand new one is part Just me. 